I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Adam Bessie, author of Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey. The pandemic changed our lives and society in ways that we continue to grapple with. For teachers, the shifts in their daily lives was nothing short of seismic. Adam Bessie, a longtime community college English professor in the San Francisco Bay Area, shares a moving and eye-opening graphic account of what it really meant for teachers and students to go virtual. As COVID raged, many struggled to stay afloat economically and to cope with the disproportionate toll the pandemic took on marginalized and oppressed groups. From his teaching bunker in his garage, he witnesses the devastating collision of a public health crisis with longstanding social injustice. His new book is a powerful reminder of how, even with the most sophisticated technology, the real-world classroom experience can't be replicated in the virtual world. He won the New York Association of Black Journalists 2018 Award and writes comics that have appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Boston Globe, and The Los Angeles Times. Welcome to the show, Adam. Nice to have you on. What a lovely introduction, Catherine. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Well, let's uh, let's get to it. So, the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic, this book, this is your memoir written after the pandemic. And I guess what I said in the beginning, I, it was such a, a, a cataclysmic change for you personally, as well as for you as a teacher and for the students that you teach, right? So... Let's begin. Yeah. Well, I can jump in here, too. You said I wrote it after the pandemic. I was writing it during it. In fact, um, this started uh, with an essay I wrote. I didn't plan it to be a book. I just wrote an essay, graphic essay, with my artist Peter Glanting starting in March of 2020. So literally, I think Friday the 13th is when we all we're done. We're like, you got to go home and within a week, learn how to teach online. And I'd never taught online before. And so I got into my teaching bunker, as you uh, pointed out so well, which is my garage that I'm looking at right now, as I talk to you, my living room. And I started writing down what would become what is now the third chapter of the book. And I got that done. And then it, over the pandemic, uh, I took about a year off of writing it, and then once I'd experienced a bit more and was able to see kind of a longer view and have taught online for a while and see the devastation, not just from the medical side, but from the human side, um, I was able to get back into writing the memoir and finished writing it actually in the end of 2021. So, Adam, but you, uh, two things were happening to you. There's a pandemic going on with all of us and all around you, but then there's a pandemic also going on in your brain uh, simultaneously. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're... I've, I've never heard it put that way. <laughs> yeah, so this, this book, if I could summarize it into an alliterative fashion, since I'm an English professor, this is about the pandemic, which I'm experiencing as a professor, but also as a cancer patient. Uh, I've had a brain tumor since 2009. I'll get back into that in a minute. And as a partner and as a parent of a second grader, and most of all, as a person. And so this book, Going Remote, it's called The Teacher's Journey. 
But teachers are people. I know that sounds like a really kind of facile or obvious statement. But when you look at the ways in which teachers were represented during the pandemic and continue to be in the culture wars now, we're not people. We're just one-dimensional cardboard cutouts. And so my goal with this book was to show my journey as a teacher, which is just my journey. And part of that journey threaded with that was the experience of, you know, having to teach math of, with my son. I don't know any math beyond second grade, apparently. <laughs> and also threading within that is the story of grappling with uh, a possible recurrence of the brain tumor I have lived with. And as the book starts, you will see uh, in January 2020, I've just gotten off of uh, a sabbatical for a semester where I was working on some writing, but also I was finishing up a course of chemotherapy. And at that time, I wasn't sure if the chemotherapy would work and even if I'd be able to come back. And sure enough, I come back from the chemo and it works and the pandemic happens, of course. Do you think that that was, I mean, you had also, what, you were out of, out of, well, say six months, let's say you weren't in the class teaching. So you were isolated, then you come back, then you're isolated, then everybody's isolated. So you already had had the yeah. experience of isolation or you had, uh, being isolated from your students. Um, you have some sense of what that feels like, I imagine, right? Having, um, not being able to be with people or connecting with people in the way you do in the classroom. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. So yeah. Oh, sorry. Go on. No, go ahead. Yeah. So yes, that, that was part of bef before the pandemic happened. I also, you know, w when one lives through a cancer treatment and I've been through, through a number in my, my life, I, 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 feel like you get stuck inside something I'll call the cancer cell. You know, you, your life revolves around, orbits around that cancer, all your rhythms and things you have to uh, cope with it. And it, 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 it takes you into a world that Susan Sontag aptly describes in her work, Illness as Metaphor, as the kingdom of the ill. And in her seminal work, she says, you know, all of us have passports to the kingdom of the well and the kingdom of the ill. And occasionally we're uh, obliged to use that passport to the kingdom of the ill. And in that kingdom of the ill, you often feel, or at least I did, quite disconnected from the world of the healthy. You, you're in the hospital a lot. You're dealing with feeling nauseous, ill. And there is, when, you know, with cancer, you're like, well, is this going to work? Am I going to get out on the other side of this experience? And during those days when I was feeling awful, teaching for me was a bright spot. When I'm in the classroom, I just feel, and you'll see this represented beautifully in the book by my artist, Peter, there's a power in this classroom, this dynamic energy. It's very much like, I mean, I have no musical talent, uh, but it's very much what I'd imagine playing jazz is like. You're in the moment with other people and this electric sort of harmonic energy goes through the room and it, it makes you feel at the best of moments in a state of flow and just fully alive. And when I was feeling in that space of illness, 
disconnected from that power of the classroom, that flow of the classroom. I would like picture that and I would picture coming back and being in that space. And in fact, I was able to achieve that, which felt like it's such a huge success, success. And then to have come back and just to be getting my footing. And as you'll see in the first chapter, I'm wondering, you know, okay, I'm back. I look the same to everybody else, but am I the same? Will I be able to do this again as I did? And I did after, you know, about a month, I felt like, yeah, I'm back in it. I'm here. I'm doing it. I felt like I'd come on that other side of this cancer experience. And right then the pandemic happened. And I thought to myself, Obviously, it was shocking, and I'm like, this is some kind of crazy joke. But then I said, well, you know, one of the challenges of living in the cancer cell and living in the kingdom of the ill is a feeling of social isolation and that, that people can't understand what you're going through. And you talk to any cancer patient, I can guarantee you that that's, that's part of the cancer experience many of us feel. And I thought, well, maybe if this culture, if we all go through this pandemic, we're all quarantined. We all know what it feels like to, to not know if the disease are, is going to happen or not, but that would have an opportunity to sort of pierce that bubble. If everyone was in the kingdom of the sick, then maybe we could together create some solidarity and, and take away that line. Um, I don't know that that really happened, uh, but I still hope for that. Did you ever, or do you talk to your students, uh, discuss just what you're talking to me about, about how kind of bridging that gap? And then we all got sick, or we all had the potential for getting sick, or we all knew somebody who was sick in a very intimate way, which is what you've been experienced with brain cancer. I mean, was that a topic that that you talked with your students about? And you have a very, diver, you know, community college, very diverse group of students in, in terms of age and demographics and everything, I guess. So uh, they too have very different kinds of experiences. Did that come into play, I guess, during the pandemic while you were teaching? Yeah. So, so during, I was online for probably about 18 months, um, which again, I had never taught online before. I'd used online platforms. So I was familiar with them. Um, and so when I was online, you know, I wasn't able to do what I did best, which is create this classroom space where I could really draw out all the diversity of those student experiences. So as you as you mentioned, yeah, my community college in the San Francisco Bay Area has diversity in every which way you can think of. I have students from all over the world. We're, we're a school that feeds into UC Berkeley, and so we get lots of students trying to get into Berkeley from all, you know, Korea, from Kazakhstan and everywhere in between. And we have students from across the street from 16. And then I've got adults that are, you know, in their fifties and even sixties. And I have folks that are disabled and anything you can think of. And that's one of my great joys is that what spaces exist where you bring together a 55 year old African-American woman with an 18 year old from Indonesia in the same space, and you're having conversations about the same things. That really has never gotten boring to me. But online, it just was so hard to 
pull out from me. And I know there are other instructors. I have some colleagues that are fantastically talented at using online spaces. And I did my darndest to, you know, create those spaces where the students could really bring themselves and all the struggles they were having during the pandemic and just in their lives in general into that space. But just for me, I felt like with the Zoom window, the two-dimensional reality, it was really challenging to create that power and that dynamism. And to answer your specific question, I didn't explicitly bring in my experience into that space because, you know, I want to really make the focus about them and about what's going on with them. And and my own story, I think for for many students, uh, cancer really scares them. And that idea of cancer scares them. And I try as a teacher to as much as possible have them be the center of the class as opposed to myself, have them create the content. That said, as the book has started to come out, and I started, I did a big book release on my campus in person, and I shared much of my story to my students. And I realized maybe some of that, that idea I just mentioned that, you know, oh, well, I don't, I want to make it about them and not about me. That may have been uh, some fear, some other things, because the students afterwards were like, one comment I'll never forget is like, I didn't really know what, what teachers went through, which is really saying they didn't know, you know, about the human dimension that we were humans as well. And it made me think, God, I wish during the pandemic I had foregrounded my story a bit more as a means by which to help students uh, understand, you know, my own resiliency. But, you know, I've now am integrating that more. Oh, it's interesting because during the pandemic, I quarantined with my two-year-old twins and five-year-old grandsons and my son and daughter-in-law, and she is a teacher. And it was kind of the opposite. I know her as my daughter-in-law, but not and mother of my grandchildren. And yet when the pandemic happened, I'm standing here screaming, just teach, do it, do what you do. I mean, you know how to <laughs> teach. And, and everyone's complaining they don't have a teacher and the kids aren't in school, but that's your area of expertise. It's not mine. I'm a social worker. So uh, yeah. And she did teach, teach her own kids, but yeah. Uh, and we do see teachers. I have to say, you don't, Think, you think of them as teachers and not necessarily as people, real people and all the stuff that, you know, that they're going through, as, you know, as you're describing. But, uh, you know, from a technology point of view, you're talking about some of the a lot of your students are uh, marginalized. Um, how did they deal with the technology and did they have access to, to, to computers and to be able to uh, take Zoom classes? Yeah, that, that is a great question. And so when we talk about technology, we want to, we want to think about it's not just the, the device itself, like the computer, but the, the space in which the student is able to use that. So one common story, Catherine, I heard over and over again is, number one, the, the student would have a computer, but the, the internet was slow or bad. And I would just see this on the Zoom where people would cut out. Sometimes my internet would cut out in my teaching bunker, you know. So 
So there was that. But then a lot of students were having to share their computer. They didn't have multiple computers. They didn't have to share it with a sibling, right, or a parent. And so there was a competition over that device. And then on top of that, you know, the students also were, you know, as people were quarantining, were all together in spaces that were quite loud. And so the moral of the story is many students were in spaces that were not conducive at all to learning. And this is what I've mentioned to you are students that are, are relatively privileged. There were some students that had no access at all to the technology. And there were some students, many, unfortunately, that were dealing with abusive households, which you as a social worker, I'm sure, are familiar with. And one thing that I saw during the pandemic that really, and this is a major point in the book that folks will see, I had so many emails about mental health crises and other kinds of crises that I was, I ended up becoming a member of the campus's crisis team because I filed so many reports <laughs> that they said, can you just join our team, please? And the team was uh, professional counselors um, and other folks who were actually trained at this work and not me. And so what I, what I found in this period is that it wasn't just, does the student have this access to this technology, but are they in a, a safe space? where they can feel supported and loved and cared for in a, a, a protected space. And, and for many students, that, w- that wasn't the reality. And so it wasn't just that their Wi-Fi was dropping them, but that they were in spaces that they really couldn't focus or learn. What students would you say, I mean, uh, had the most, uh, maybe some of the stories Give us some stories that really. Yeah, I would. I would. Yeah, love to. Uh, yeah, or examples uh, still, of what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, I have so many; it's, <laughs> it's it's overwhelming. But the one that's highlighted in the book is that I. Uh, this is about um, September, October in the pandemic, and um, I get an email that says something like "late homework," and I, I just you know sometimes I feel more like email than man. I just would be getting so many emails, and this one looked innocuous, and it was far from innocuous. It said, sorry, Mr. Bessie, I uh, didn't get the homework done. I could, attempted suicide, and I, that just blew me away. And as someone that, if you know, an English professor, I'm trained in the arts of language and, you know, in the arts of making a classroom, but I have no training in being a frontline emotional worker in dealing with someone who's in a serious crisis. Now, before the pandemic, I've, I've dealt with, I have a kind of teaching style that permits lots of conversation and talking. And so things would always come up, but this was of a different order and magnitude. And so with this particular student, you know, again, if, if I were in a classroom space, I'd walk them over to the counselor. So I, I texted my department here. This is like six in the morning. I said, <laughs> This person is, is attempted suicide. What do I do? Do I call 911? I said no. And thankfully, I got in touch with this campus crisis team, and, and they were able to, you know, give me leverage their knowledge with actually working with this population. Then I'd get emails, you know, I'd, you know the next day would be like, I have a student that's got COVID. It's like, I'm going to the hospital. I don't know what's going to happen. I got many emails with students that were living out of their car homeless 
And it became su- such of a drumbeat that I felt like I was no longer sometimes a teacher, but I was this sort of social worker that had not that had any training at all for that. And I would say if there's one goal of this book, of which there's many, but one of the main goals is that I would love us, <coughs> excuse me, to have training for teachers in being frontline emotional workers. And still after the pandemic, there is no, I don't see any big effort to really push for that kind of training so that that teachers, we're not going to be experts in any way, shape, or form, but we can deal with the kind of crises that, that I experienced during the pandemic. And quite frankly, I've been back in the classroom now, uh, thankfully, since spring 2022, and I'm seeing almost the same number of crises. But yet we do not, and it's not just my college, but in general, we don't have any infrastructure to really support these students that are in a continuing crisis. I think that's a good point because those crises have always been there. And as you're alluding to, I guess, teachers haven't really been aware of them, you know, whether it's a child who's being abused at home or a whole myriad of things that happen to kids. And I, I, yeah, teachers need to be trained so at least they can get their the kids to the right place. But first, you have to be able to recognize uh, that there is a crisis or students are going through a crisis. Sometimes it's... I mean, you can answer this. It's a different skill set. Like I sort of mentioned earlier, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a good teacher. I'm a good social worker, a good counselor. I don't quite have that skill set. Maybe it's a little bit different in terms of what we're talking about, that you just, as a teacher, maybe you need to be able to, as you say, be a frontline worker uh, and be able to recognize when, when your kids, whoever the kids are, whether they're 51 or, <laughs> or five, are in trouble. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that one of the main lessons I gleaned from, you know, my exodus online and being disconnected from that that power in in the room, you know, I mean, I already did a lot of this kind of work where students' voices are important and what they have to say is important in creating spaces where their voices are more important than my voice. You know, and this, the pandemic just reaffirmed the need to create student-centered spaces where, where they get, students feel that they can talk about what's happening in their life and how they see what's happening in their life. But that's really not enough. There also needs to be a larger infrastructure where when a student is in crisis, that a teacher is able to recommend them somewhere to somebody that actually like you, Catherine, or other folks, and we do have wonderful folks at my college, that they can actually provide them services. And I think that's when I'm looking towards the future of what is this moment, what opportunities does this moment of crisis in community college provide us? And in a way, we needed this sort of shock to the system because the community college system, though it is intended to be open access for everybody, in reality, we see students of color struggling much more, disabled students struggling much more. A lot of the fault lines and inequities and inequalities and oppressions that happen in the community happen in the community college. They're one, they're one and the same. 
And so my hope was that this crisis could be, you know, turned into an opportunity to make these these transformations we need to see that these systems are not adding to oppression and mental illness and problems, but are helping alleviate and to support those students in transforming themselves and their lives. That's why I got into teaching community college, is that it was an institution, and I still believe this, that is uniquely positioned to provide everybody an opportunity to transform their life. That is very unique. But I haven't seen us make that big commitment to making that transformation. Rather, I've just seen us double down on technological solutions, which is not to say that the technology, we don't have to adapt to it or can't confront what's happening with AI and with other technologies. We need to. It's part of our lives and part of being a community. But my concern is that, that I, I worry that we're losing a moment of opportunity that we really could rethink education in community terms and move away from this sort of factory customer model way of thinking. And so, so I, that's why I wrote this book. And I still have hope that my book and other books and writings by folks that are actually in the community will catalyze a movement to really transform the community college into a, a truly democratic space that can really uh, support these marginalized students. Well, maybe you as a leader can help to with let's say you mentioned AI, to be able to connect all of these community colleges together to be able to do exactly what you're talking about, using that technology to be able to promote to promote that, that uh, agenda or that mission that you have with the book. Uh, you know, I hate to, we, we only have a couple minutes left, so we have to say goodbye, but um, boy, there's a lot of Great information. Going Remote is the title of Adam Bessie's book, Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey. And Adam, you can obviously buy the book online. Um, what else do we need to know if we want to continue our conversations with you? Yeah, my, my website is adambessie.com, B-E-S-S-I-E. You can find me on Instagram with my name and on Twitter at my name. And if you are in the San Francisco Bay Area, I'm speaking at Book Book Passage on Saturday um, at 11, and that'll be a great live event where we can talk more. Great. Great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 